In studio, a trio of professors. Kevin O'Rourke is a professor of economic history at All Souls College in Oxford. Robert Elgie is professor of international studies in the School of Law and Government at DCU. And Emmanuel Coman represents the Department of Political Science at Trinity College Dublin. Robert, I might start with you. The two great bastions, the big parties of France, the Socialists and the Republicans, seem to have gone into tatters. What happened? Tell us about that part of the story first. So this is the first time that neither the left nor the right has been in the second round. So that's that's a difference from before. But, I mean, in one sense, you know, France has been in difficulty, in political difficulty for decades. I mean, governments have had difficulty being re-elected. Uh, this notion of people being fed up, you know, oh, I don't know what to do, you know, nobody's any good, they're all corrupt. I mean, this is an old theme, and it's one of the reasons why governments and presidents have found it difficult to get re-elected. So, you know, in one sense, you know, we focus on Marine Le Pen and her success in one sense and say, well, this is very new. Well, you know, in 2002, her father got through to the second round. So that was that's 15 years ago now. So the extreme right, and in that sense, the populist extreme right has been around for a long time, even if it's certainly done better now. And the whole feeling of just being fed up with the political system has been around for a long time. Unemployment has been very high for a long time. Sorts of social pressures have been around for a long time. So it's not something that's new. It's not just a Brexit phenomenon. It's not just a Trump phenomenon. It hasn't just arrived on the scene. This is a, quite a long-term thing. But why now? You know, why has Macron become successful now? Well, in one sense, he's been very lucky because on the extreme right, uh, there's an extreme right candidate. On the, the Republicans, they chose uh, a candidate who then got mired in scandal. I mean, it was really his election to lose, and he managed to do that very well. This was Francois Fillon. This Fillan. was Francois Fillon, exactly, yeah. So that on the, the right wing, the main right wing candidate really almost went out of the picture quite soon, as soon as the corruption scandals went. And on the left, the socialist candidate, they, the socialist chose one of the, a sort of a more left wing uh, part, a candidate from their party. Uh, and then there was the... Uh, extreme left, if you like, candidate Mélenchon. So there was this huge gap in the centre that Macron was able to fill. And if the socialists had chosen someone different, if the Republicans had chosen someone different, then we could be here talking about at least one very different candidate in the second round. So, I mean, that, that's, that's not to um, uh, do down Macron's achievement because I have to say, I, I thought he would have, uh, his campaign would have blown up weeks ago. I mean, this is, as you say, the first time he stood for election. He's a novice in politics in that way. I mean, I expect him to make a, a gaff at a certain point <laughs> and really not to be able to, to go through it. And he hasn't. In fairness to him, he's run a really uh, good campaign for him. Um, and in that sense, so he was a little bit lucky in one sense. He's been able to, to play off the sort of extremes against mm. each other and the space has opened in the centre. But in another place, another time, he's also done very well in terms of his campaigning. Emmanuel Coleman, what do you think of him? I saw a video of him last week where there were um, uh, workers striking at a whirlpool factory and Marine Le Pen had gone down and was whipping them all up and telling them this was all the fault of the EU. And he went down to this very angry crowd and he you know, answered their questions and calmed them down and fought his corner. And it was something I've always wanted to see a politician do, but they rarely do so. Is he the real thing? Oh, well, <laughs> depends what we mean by the real thing. He's still a politician. He's a very charismatic one, as as you was said. He does seem to represent a new wave. He's answering questions for a, for a change. And he does seem to answer them in ways uh, that don't look that populist, definitely much less populist than Marine Le Pen, uh, who makes often promises that cannot be fulfilled within the EU. For instance, giving more rights to French workers or uh, discriminating when it comes to employment. 
So he, he is in that regard more down to earth. He knows what he can do. He knows what he can promise. And probably he learned from the mistakes he made as a minister of the economy. That's part of his past as he's kind of trying to uh, nudge under the rug. But overall, I think he he does come as the more balanced candidate. And sorry, what mistakes did he make when he was well, not minister? Not necessarily mistakes, yeah. but the record. I mean, unemployment has been over 9% since uh, April of 2009, and also part of his rule. And that came out in the last debate. Why didn't he do something? If he promises to actually be able to do something now, why didn't he do that in the past? But he's still able to actually come up with a plan, uh, at least on paper, looks feasible, much more than what uh, Marine Le Pen actually promises. Mm. He promises investments, $50 billion in investments. He also promises, very interesting, cuts in employment by the government, 120,000 people which are his, he used to be a socialist. Right now, as uh, Professor Haji said, he's moved to the centrum. Because there is this idea that France has this huge, bloated government with millions of civil servants and, and what are they actually doing. So he's, he says he's going to take them on. Yes, and that's basically part of his, I believe, mission to take over the right side of this political spectrum that has been left open by Fillon. Kevin, when I see him and when I hear of this kind of third way approach, you know, from the left, but taking elements of the right, I can't help thinking of Tony Blair. Do you see him as a a kind of Blair candidate? Yeah, he is plausibly a Blair Clinton type of person. I want to pick up on something that Robert said, you know, because social scientists tend to look for deep structural explanations for, for things like this election. But there's actually a huge role for contingency and chance here. If the Canard Enchaîné had published its revelations about Fillon before the Republican primaries had finished, I think we might well be talking about Alain Juppé as president of France today. And it would be a story about you know the, uh, the, the, the Republicans taking back power from socialists, which is the way that things are supposed to work. You know, so that's 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 the first point. On the issue of the politics that he's going to be pursuing in government, I'd be pretty confident based on the advisors that he has that, you know, he, he, he will be starting out on a sort of sensible basis. One thing that strikes me when I talk in France at sort of economics a conference and that kind of thing is it's incredibly polarised ideologically. There's a lot of people on the right who would have you believe that all of France's problems are due to red tape or taxes or, uh, you know, structural problems like this. And then on the left, you have a whole bunch of people who will have you believed that it's only a problem of a lack of spending, a lack of demand or a misaligned exchange rate. And typically, the world isn't that simple. You know, there's probably a bit of both going on. You know, France probably needs more spending and it probably needs some reforms as well. And I think that's what you're going to get, that kind of policy mix. How would you describe the country is it a success? I mean, <clears throat> I have this very tourist you know, view of it where I have this idea that trade unions are very powerful, labor law is quite strict, and that's good for employees, but it's difficult to get investment in, but that they have a good quality of life, they have good social protection, and as a country, it's a success. But that doesn't seem to be how they see yes. it. I'm an economist, so I have two hands, so I'm going to say one on the one hand, on okay. the other. I mean, they do have problems. They do have unemployment, which on the harmonised basis is around 10% right now. That's just a smidgen under the Eurozone average. So their unemployment problem isn't actually worse than anybody else's. I read a fascinating paper by one of England's leading economists uh, the other week, Richard Blundell, where he looked at their youth unemployment rate, which we always hear about, which looks very, very high. But if you look at youth unemployment compared to the 
young population, it's actually no higher than in England or America. It seems very high because we can, we calculate unemployment rates by looking at the number of unemployed as a share of the labour force in yeah. that age category. And the unusual and the labour force is people who are either working or seeking work. And the unusual thing about France is that an awful lot of young people are in employment and not seeking work because the state is paying for them. Thank you very much. And so you're 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 dividing a rather sort of typical number of unemployed young people by a much smaller youth unemployed uh, youth labour force, and so you end up with a big rate. So even that totemic failure with the French state is sometimes overstated. If you look at their productivity, it's as good as America's. It's as good as well ahead of Britain's, I think probably. They've got a lot going for them. But I think that when they have typical unemployment, maybe they get angrier than, than other people. You know, they like to rally, and, as they say. And, and, and that can be good because it means that you improve things, but it can be bad because then pessimism can feed in itself. And is it a very class-ridden society? You have a connection with the small village in, in rural France. And, you know, if you're, say, an ordinary uh, young man from a small town like that, what are your genuine opportunities to advance in life? Oh, now you're asking me to generalise based on my, my village and I'm a real culture in, in French Anecdoted, terms. Anecdoted, Kevin, uh, go for it. Um, I spent three years in this little village and during one of them I would go up to Sciences Po uh, to teach to make money on a Thursday and, you know, it's... it's they're two different countries in a sense. You know, in my village, they were all, you know, the young people talking about voting against the constitutional treaty. This is back in 2005 in Sciences Po. They were all voting in favour of it and so on. The people up in Paris maybe send their kids to the right lycées and then they get into the, the right prépas and they go to the right grandes écoles and that's not what the people down in the, the village are doing, of course. On the other hand, you know, lots of kids in my local village are doing uh, apprenticeships, you know, they they have professional lycées that I think do a much better job than we do in Ireland, probably, yeah. of uh, uh, training people up for 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 life in in the real world and manual professions of of various sorts. So it's on the one hand and on the other. So I think the big problems are in the so, well, first of all, in these awful banlieues where you have these sort of you know r- racially segregated uh, uh, enclaves of people who are discriminated against, and then there are these big uh, areas of unemployment, these ex-industrial areas. And I mean, that's not the idyllic France that you see in your holidays. So they clearly have problems, but those problems can also be overstated. And so would you describe it as overall a fair society, say, as compared to America? Well, that's that's setting the bar pretty low, you know. OK. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would be a fair comparison uh, then? Well, now I'm going to defer to my colleagues here. I don't think social mobility is that great in France. I don't think in a relative in a relative term. I think it's pretty class ridden, actually. I think I think people can have reasonably decent lives up and down the scale. Yeah. But I I think that maybe they're probably quite largely stuck in these scales. You hear funny stories. A, a friend of mine was saying that in his uh, place when he went to college. Uh, the doctor sons all got to do German as a foreign language and the other guys got to do English as a foreign language. And so then if you did German as a foreign language, then you went to their good lycée and there's this, there, there's, there can be this kind of thing That's going interesting. on. But, you know, on the other hand, they have a state that takes care of you. And I was very struck, I was there in 2008, nine. Uh, how much more insecure Irish people felt when we had our crisis. Now, it was a bigger crisis than the French crisis, but at least you knew that, you know, the state was at some level going to take care of you. The French state. Yeah. Hmm. Emmanuel Coman, to come to you. I'm just wondering, 
So let's say we look at the Netherlands, right? And the panic that was on there from foreign press about Gert Wilders and, oh, this is more Trump, this is more Brexit, this is more dangerous right-wing populism, it must be crushed. Yet commentators inside the country were saying, look, this guy has been around for ages. Nobody wants to work with him. He's never going to, to get into power. Are we doing the same thing with Le Pen, where we're imposing this narrative on a domestic election in the light of Trump and Brexit that actually isn't warranted? There are far more complex things going on, and it's a crude narrative. Yes and no. So definitely there's been some exaggeration, especially in the comparison between Brexit and Trump on one hand and everything else on the other. But at the same time, not necessarily having Marine Le Pen as a president is dangerous, but rather, but rather the fact that she made it to the runoff, the fact that people are really concerned about the rise of populism, I think should raise some questions. And in that sense, I think we do need to pay attention to this phenomenon. Now, related to what you said earlier, you are right. Get Wilders was not even close to becoming prime minister. And this discourse is also part of the fact that most of the media coverage happens in the United States and Britain where the person or the party who wins the most votes or whatever, or electoral college in the U.S., the, uh, their leader becomes prime minister or president. That's the case in Britain for most of the time, and that's def definitely the case in the United States. That's not the case, certainly, in the Netherlands, where there's always need for a coalition and where parties like uh, Party of Freedom or Pim Fortunlist, who previously had done even better than the party of Gerrit Wilders, are always ostracized by the mainstream parties. The same thing happened institutionally in France, where just like it is the case now with the runoff that virtually all parties rally behind the mainstream candidate, that has happened in 2002, and that also happens at the level of single-member district in parliamentary elections. Uh, what we need to say is that right now, before the parliamentary election, Front National, to my knowledge, has two seats in the national parliament out of 577. Another thing that we ignore is the fact that France is not a presidential system like the United States. They will have to pick a prime minister from the party or coalition of parties that will gain a majority of seats in the parliament in the upcoming elections. So it would, it's... The institutional setting it's so is set so against these fringe parties that it's very unlikely to actually give uh, people like Marine Le Pen or Gail Wilders a clear majority and actually the possibility to deliver on their promises. Are you saying it's a bit like America where, fine, Obama could win, but then he can't do much because he has to deal with Congress where you have Democrats and Republicans vying with each other? Macron will have to deal with a parliament that will still have Republicans and socialists very strong, even though one of them isn't president. Is that it? Well, actually, and there are very few polls, and probably other, uh, the other panelists can jump in. The latest poll that I saw would show on March with a majority of seats, which would be quite... Uh, oh, so that's Macron's own exactly, movement, his own calling movement. it. Okay, yeah. And if that's the case, then we won't have cohabitation. Then indeed, he could at least in theory deliver on his promises. He would pick uh, prime ministers from his own movement or party or whatever you want to And when are those elections to the actual parliament? In June. In June, okay. So, Kevin O'Rourke, going back to this idea of populism, I've had, some people have said to me, look, but what is populism? 
if it's people who are legitimately angry and feel legitimately let down by the system and by elites, is it fair to characterize them as, say, the Democrats did of Republicans in the US elections as just a bunch of racists that must be crushed at all costs? And we're seeing these Le Pen voters, you know, they're just anti-Muslim, anti-EU. They must be crushed at all costs. But at the same time, there was this uh, radical left vote for this guy, Mélenchon, which meant that 40% of people who voted in the first round were voting for anti-EU candidates. Is that something we can afford to ignore on the basis that, well, populism must be crushed, obviously? Firstly, I'm not sure that all of those 40% were voting the way they did because of the EU. Like the Mélenchon people, they may not be very keen on the EU. They may view it as a capitalist conspiracy. But I bet you a lot of them are just voting on standard French ultra left wing view uh, platform or environmental issues or or this type of thing. Um, Now, to get back to the the, the broader question about populism, if you think about, say, Brexit or you think about Trump, two narrow votes could have gone either way. It's unlikely that the Brexiteers are all cut of the same cloth. In fact, we know they're not. You know, so there are some similarities between these countries and then there are some differences. There are similarities between uh, former industrial workers who are now unemployed in North Carolina and the north of England and the northeast of France, mm. you know, on the one hand. But on the other hand, in England, you have these, you know, shires, you know, with their Tory voters <coughs> reading the Daily Telegraph who are nostalgic for whatever they're nostalgic about. Yeah. And in France, you have the the legacy of you know Vichy or whatever you want to characterize it, you know, uh, Algeria, all this kind of toxic stuff. Uh, in, in, in you have the evangelicals in America. So, so these are always coalitions, you know, and you, you can't assume that it's all the same. It's a bit of both, like Emmanuel was saying. It's, you know. But what about that issue, though, that the European elites can go great? We beat them in the Netherlands. We've beaten them in France. Look, the Brits were always associate members of the golf club, anyway. You know that they won't feel the need to reform the system. Now, that presupposes that the system does need reforming. Maybe you do or don't agree with that. So that the status quo is going to win because people are so concerned about the fringe. Well, I mean, in a way, if there there was such a thing as the European elites, probably our our lives would be easier because they could probably do something about Europe. The problem is we have, you know, 27 or 28 countries with their own governments. Those are the elites and they're all responding to their national electorates. And that's what makes reform difficult. Like, it's clear that Macron is going to come in with a, a, an agenda to reform the way the Eurozone works. I think he's going to want more expenditure and so on. I'm quite sure that they would like the ECB to ease up on monetary policy. I'm quite sure that they would like, uh, I mean, this is, but these are longstanding French positions, yeah. that they would like transfers uh, to countries in the event of a downturn, maybe linked to unemployment uh, benefits, that they'd like to pay for that with maybe uniform corporate tax and so on. All or, or, or would I say a common corporate tax across Europe? These are all good ideas, but then you know Germany doesn't feel the same way. That's the that's the that's what's going to lead to to stasis. I think more than complacency, just that there are fundamental disagreements about the way that Europe should go. Robert, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, in one sense, you know, the happiest people are going to be whether they're European elites or not. But certainly, the the main figures in the EU, they're going to be happy because I mean, if it had been Le Pen. Uh, it would have been a disaster. And actually, one of the things that came out of the debate was that Le Pen seemed to have no idea 
about how monetary policy worked, about really that her plans for the EU were just farcical. Yeah, they sounded crackers. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And so, listen, in one sense, the elites are going to be happy. But in another way, I mean, someone like Varoufakis came out in favor of Macron. So, and his logic was, well, he's actually quite a hard, uh, you know, talker. He's, you know, he actually will stick to his positions. And so it might not be just a cosy cartel that's returned, even if it's certainly not going to be everybody Frexiting now or anything like that. Interesting that you mentioned Varoufakis. Do you see Macron as being of his kind of ilk? You know, superstar Kevin is shaking his head. (laughs) Not not politically, not in terms of policies. I mean... I don't think Macron is Macron is not somebody who drives around on a motorbike. Uh, Macron is, you know, somebody who's more likely to go around in a not quite a pinstripe suit, but certainly a nice blazer. Um, so, you know, he's he's not that that sort of person. I don't. I mean, he's he's not a very good speaker in terms of public speaking. So he's not really got that charisma. Maybe whether Blair had that sort of charisma is another sort of issue. But he's not that sort of person who can. He's one of his difficulties is getting people behind him in that way. He's, and one of the things that Le Pen tried to do in the debate was to sort of portray him as being very sort of like a school teacher or like a you know a lecturer telling people what to do. Uh, and he actually didn't rise to that particular debate, but it's easy for him to come across that way. So, you know, in one sense, he's not a you know a populist himself, man yeah. of the people. He's not some sort of would you call figure. Would you call Varoufakis, and we're talking about the, the former Greek finance minister here, the guy with the leather jacket and the motorbike, would you call him a populist? Well, it depends what you mean by a populist. Well, exactly. What do you mean by populist? So, I mean, I think it came yeah. out very uh, nicely in the debate uh, with Macron the other day. When Le Pen, if she's a populist, then one of the things that she was doing was saying things that were extremely negative. I mean, it was uh, not just Macron, but the the presenters of the program had to keep saying to her, but what are you proposing as opposed to what do you, what do you disagree with or what do you think is wrong with the other side? So one of the things I think in a French term in a Le Pen uh, sort of aspect is populism is this notion of being very negative. Right. The other thing that she was trying to do was to look for the most sorts of common, lowest common denominator policies. And they, the fact was they didn't always uh, match each other. So there was a nice example in the debate where at one point she said that she was going to you know, put a tax on imports. And this was, a, you know, this was something, I mean, you know, who could disagree with that? You know, all these imports come in, we'll get more money, this is going to help our budget. And then at another point in the debate, about 10 minutes later, she said, but we're, we're, we're going to cut um, the cost of medicines. Uh, and Macron just turned around and said, but 80% of our medicines are imported. So you're going to put a tax on imports on the one hand, and then you're going to say you're going to cut right. tax. It was it was made no sense whatsoever. But that's the sort of populism, the notion that you can try and go to the lowest common, even if you're actually proposing something, that you go to the lowest common denominator, even if the two things that you're suggesting don't match. Uh, Kevin? I think that one of the things that is the, a big electoral liability for Macron may end up being a strength when it comes to being not complacent going forward, you know, which is that he was in François Hollande's government. You know, he was the minister for the economy, right? And so he's been part of a historically unpopular government and presidency. He can He's seen at first hand uh, just how fast things can get out of control and your presidency can be dead in the water. And I think that surely is going to spur him to want to shake up things in one way or another. Now, exactly how is another matter? How mighty, Emmanuel? What could he do? It's really, really hard to tell. He definitely can implement most of the stuff that he promised. And that's that's a big step. As he was said, probably that's what separates populists because it's, it's a term that's been used left and right. It's, in my view, is promising things that have no foundation and campaigning like Trump on the idea that 
everything that people have done before him was basically out of um, the fact that they're just mean. They don't want to give people cheaper medicines, cheap access to medicines, better coverage in medicine, ex uh, all that stuff. And he can just do it because he wants to do it. Where, in fact, certain things are not easily implemented. Certain things are just cannot be achieved. Uh, and I said it before, some things cannot be achieved under EU membership. Now, of course, she also promises uh, a EU referendum. But unless you have that, you cannot just promise taxes on imports from Europe. You cannot uh, promise discrimination in employment. So you give the jobs to the French. So would you have called the far left candidate, Mélenchon, a populist too, using that definition, promising things that just cannot be done? Yes. Under, under my definition, yes, I would say so. Okay. Robert Elgy, so Macron wins. Everybody's relieved. Le Pen is crushed. Thank God for that. Then what? Well, then there's going to be legislative elections in about six weeks. Now, Macron has no party. He has no candidates, or at least very, very few. So in a very, very short space of time, he's, have to, he's going to have to get together a whole bunch of people to stand uh, under his banner uh, to try to win a majority. Now, he's going to probably try to get some people who were previously socialists to support him. He's going to get some people who were previously Gaullists or Republicans to support him. But it's going to be a difficult task just to get those people together, not least because he said he wants a certain profile of person, that you can't be both a socialist and on marche. So people are going to have to choose. So there's going to be, it's going to be very difficult for him to get that, that, that process together. And that doesn't mean to say that people are not going to then vote for his candidates. Mm. I mean, the chances are that in a honeymoon election, people will vote for his candidates and at least get some sort of majority, maybe not an absolute majority, but he should get a governing majority. But there's going to be a lot of people who are in a very difficult position who are having to decide amongst the socialists and the Gaullists, that is, do I go with Marsh or do I stay with my own party? What's my, what's my calculation here? What should I do for the best chances of me getting re-elected? Yeah. And then Macron has to decide, well, okay, you say you want to join us, but are you the right person? So there's going to be a lot of bargaining and a lot of trading, uh, uh, horse trading, political horse trading that goes on immediately after the second round. Yeah, it's interesting. And Kevin, it shows as well, I guess, how hard it is to break established political parties and to get into power and actually do something then. And I know this is something Janan Ganesh in the Financial Times has been talking about, that um, the dull competency, you know, of government and the simplest way sometimes to expose populists is let them into government and then they can see how bloody hard it actually is. So what do you think will happen next in France? I have no idea what will happen, okay. happen in the legislatives. I, I, I really hope that on, he does put together a good majority. That would obviously make everything on, a lot easier. On a European level, what will the significance be? I think the significance is that he's a very committed European, but he's also committed to reforming uh, Europe. And that's crucial. I thought it was actually very positive that he said to the BBC the other day, look, at, if we go on like this, you know, sometime in the future, there'll be a, a mistake, there'll be an accident and we could end up with... Le Pen in power or whatever. I think it's only France that I think can, that has the, the power to make Germany more flexible on certain key issues that are of interest to us in Ireland, for example. So, for example, in 2008, 9, 10, if we had a proper banking union, when our banks went bust, we wouldn't have had to have paid for all of it. That bill would have been paid by everybody in the European Union and so we wouldn't have gone bust. Uh, so we need a monetary union worthy of its name needs a banking union. That means common insurance and common supervision and deposit insurance and backstops for when for, for when banks 
go bankrupt. The Germans, understandably, are worried about being ripped off by everybody else. So they're very reluctant to, you know, to, to give what they see as blank check to the rest of Europe. But that's one thing that has to be done. And, and is that what Macron is in favour of? I'm, I, I, I don't know the guy, but I'm willing yeah. to bet knowing his advisors that that's something that they would be going for. But that's been a long-standing French position also. I mean, similarly, in Ireland, 2008, 9, 10, 11, if there'd been a mechanism that automatically transferred funds towards a country that saw its unemployment rate treble yeah. overnight, well, we'd have had to have had much less austerity than we in fact did. But that sort of transfer mechanism requires funding. And again, the Germans are worried about giving the rest of Europe a blank check. So, so you need, I think, a, a France that is credibly and visibly Europhile, yeah. but is willing to threaten Germany a little bit. You know, that's what you need to, to, to make the thing budge. Now, there was a similar movement in 2012 when Hollande came to power and looked for a moment as if there was going to be you know, a little bit of an attempt to make the Germans more flexible. But I suppose in the context of the crisis and Greece and everything, it was never going to happen. Uh, maybe this time around, there can be more flexibility. And in terms of the 27, so if you're putting, say, France and Germany at the core of a division there, how are the other countries located in that debate? Who can France rely on as allies? Who are the German allies? Well, I suppose France relies on the on, on the Southerners and the Germans and the Northerners. You know, I mean, the, yeah. I mean, of course, I'm neither French nor German, so I get very irritated by this notion that there has to be a Franco-German axis. But and you, somebody, you've a Danish connection. Uh, I, have a Danish, right? I have a Danish connection. You yeah. really are multicultural. Well, 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 I, I, well, I was very happy to see the Taoiseach going yeah. to, to to talk to the Danes and the Dutch because I think they are our logical partners, and maybe Scotland can be a bridge to Denmark in the uh, future. But I suppose the point about France and Germany is that if they can agree then we're probably all going to agree because they are so different, you know. And Emmanuel, how do you see that debate playing out? France versus Germany, which I'm kind of uncomfortable saying, actually, even, you know, with the overtones of, of World War II and where this all started. I think we need to, to wait for the German elections to, to unfold as well. Right. We have a series of elections. Uh, if everything uh, goes well, I do believe that the EU will get some respite for a, at least a few years. But I want to go back to what uh, Robert said about what's going to happen um, after legislative elections. He's very right. Um, and Marsh is not really a political party. It's like some sort of a movement, a banner. You are right that uh, the French vote, you know, the, uh, the best of le, uh, the less of two evils. Mm. They're also concerned about so-called cohabitation. What does that mean? When you have prime minister from one party and president from another. And if I remember correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, in 2002, they changed the electoral law ex- exactly to avoid those situations. And if they do remember uh, how unpleasant cohabitations were in the past, they're very likely to vote for uh, on March for the movement or the party of uh, the presumably uh, future president just to avoid that. Right. So it's, it's very likely, and I've made a lot of, terrible predictions in the past <laughs> year or so that Unmarsh will probably replace for now the Parti Socialiste as one of the two polls. Now, Robert, one thing we haven't been mentioning so far, even though they are big issues um, throughout Europe and not just in France, is immigration and terrorism. Um, so where does Macron stand on those two issues? Well, it was interesting in the debate. It was probably the, his most difficult moment of the debate the other night because, I mean, Le Pen came out very stridently with the sorts of things we'd expect to hear from about, about you know, getting rid of immigrants, taking them out of the country and that sort of thing. And it was difficult for Macron to actually um, 
uh, combat that in one way. But his, the main point, he said, was that we need more information. In other words, it was really about prevention rather than acting afterwards. And it was noticeable that, I mean, you never know uh, who, who the people are in some senses, but it was noticeable that some security experts came out uh, after the debate and said that was exactly what we should be doing rather than just demonizing people, demonizing, demonizing immigrants, demonizing whole classes of people. Uh, it should be trying to get more intelligence. We want one of the issues that came out in terms of previous uh, terrorist attacks in France was that the security services uh, maybe hadn't got enough resources to do the job uh, properly. So that was really one of the main things he was saying in terms of terrorism. I mean, it is in terms of the issues, um, jobs yeah. and uh, employment and um, purchasing power, those are the most important issues. Immigration comes in about fourth. Security, uh, security comes in about fourth. Immigration comes a little bit lower down. So it's not quite at the top of everybody's issue, but right. nonetheless, it clearly does have an effect. Okay, and so finally, Kevin, I might give you the last word on it then. Is this it then? Is, is, is the panic about populism over now? This is, I mean, hopefully going to be a very good election for Europe that needed a bit of a, a boost and the panic's over for now. AFD is obviously uh, very low in the polls in Germany and, and so on. And, well, but in a way, that's, 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 that's a good uh, I think that we were maybe only panicked because we're English-speaking and the English-speaking press has really played this up because, yeah. they, in a sense, they want to see themselves in, in, in Brexit Britain as not being alone and this is a general phenomenon and so on. And actually, you know, Brexit Britain is, 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 is quite unusual. Is it, has it been a distraction that somewhere bubbling over somewhere else is something that we should be looking at in terms of grand European politics and we're all being distracted by this idea of the right. Well, I think the focus has been so much on Le Pen and a lot of the English-speaking press yeah. that most people don't know who the next president of France is going to be or know anything about him. So I think the mainstream press in England especially and America probably maybe are to a lesser extent has really fallen down the job, Right, I would say. I think a lot of people would agree with that generally. Yeah. Emmanuel Coleman, Robert Elgie, Kevin O'Rourke, many thanks for joining me. Stephen Jordan produced, Aidan McKelvey researched. And for me, for now, thank you for listening.